Well, as we continue to move forward in our teaching series that we've entitled God Is, this morning I plan to look at the attribute of God's love. But before we do this, I wanted to talk a little bit about a temptation that all of us deal with. And you may not even be aware of this, and that is the temptation of idolatry. And you know, idolatry is when we take anything and we love it and we serve it and we worship it and put it above God, the God who created us. And you know, we've talked a million times about how God created us in his image, in the Imago Dei. Our holy God, the God that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, who is holy, who is set apart and above us. He created us to be his image bearers, to reflect what God looks like here on earth. And even though we have been given that great honor, there is something within man and, and, and woman that is twisted and distorted. And we're not satisfied with that. We want to create a God that is in our image. And in doing so, we, we uh, are tempted to be idolaters. And in Isaiah 44, God speaks about the folly of idolatry. And he describes how a man will go into the woods and he will cut down a tree. It could be an oak tree, it could be a cypress tree, uh, or a pine tree, and it could even be a tree that he himself had, had planted and it grew up. But he cuts it down and he brings it back to his home. And he cuts it up and part of it he builds a fire. And on that fire he warms himself, he cooks some bread and some meat, and he totally enjoys what God has given to us. And it's okay to do that, to enjoy uh, the, the warmth of a fire, to enjoy food. But then he takes the second half of that tree and he carves out of it an image, an image in the, in, the, uh, in the shape or in the image of a man. And then he sets it up and he bows down and worships it. And he says to that image, deliver me, you are my God. And God says, you know, that doesn't make sense. He doesn't consider that half of that log, half of that tree he took and he just burned it. There's ashes over there to prove it. And then the second half, he goes and worships, worships it as if it were God. And you know, it's easy for us today to see the blindness of this, the blindness of this man and think, you know, I would never do something like that. I would never bow down and worship a piece of wood and call it God and ask it to deliver me. But you know, I think that the question that we need to be asking uh, this morning in this situation is why? Why is that man worshiping something that cannot deliver him? Why is he worshiping something other than the living God? And the answer is, it's because what he thinks about God is false. The thoughts he has about God are false and therefore he is blinded. And you know, that's partly why we are doing this mini-series on the attributes of God. Because what we think about God influences the way that we love Him, the way that we serve Him, and the way that we worship Him. And if we're not careful, if our thoughts about God are not correct, we can subtly create a God in our minds and in our hearts that does not exist. And we want to be a people who worship God for who He is. Not who we want Him to be, but for who he reveals himself to be in scripture. And we want to be people that worship God in spirit and in truth. And so, you know, when it comes to the love of God, if we're not careful, we will be tempted 
to view God through the lens of our culture. And in doing so, we could worship a God that we have created with our own minds, a God that doesn't exist. And you know, the, the love of God is, is one of those attributes that I think is misunderstood greatly in our culture. And so we want to take a little bit of time this morning and look at what Scripture teaches about the love of God. And in our passage, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11, it's just five verses. But in those five verses, John uses the word love 11 times. He uses it 22 times in this chapter alone. And so we want to understand what, John, when you talk about the love of God, what are you actually talking about? And in our culture, we have one word to express love, and that is the word love. We love ice cream, we love our dog, and we love our moms. But in Greek, there are four words that are used for love. And the first one is storge, which means affection. This is the affection that should be in a healthy family, kind of like the, the affection between a parent and their child, or a big brother to a little brother who's being bullied, that love. You know, I'm allowed to, book, to pick on you, but if somebody else picks on you, you're going to get it. It's that, that's, that phrase that says, blood is thicker than water. So you have storge love, and then you have eros love, and this is romantic love. It's where we get the, our, our English word erotic. And in its purest form, romantic and sexual love are good. They were created by God and should be shared between a husband and a, and a wife in marriage. And there's a whole book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon that this kind of love can be found in. But the Greeks took this love and they perverted it by celebrating it in pagan rituals and in worship, particularly in temple worship. Now, there is a third type of love called phileo, and this means friendship. And there is a city in the New Testament and also in the United States that's named Philadelphia, which means the city of what? Brotherly love. And phileo is the affectionate love that is experienced among friends. You know those people that you love to get with? that you love to eat dinner with. They are the people that you don't send to voicemail when you see them on your caller ID. They are, they, there's such a, uh, a give and take relationship. They energize you and you energize them. That is what phileo love looks like, brotherly love. And then there's a fourth type of love. And this is, this is uh, the word that John uses in our passage, which is agape, agape love. And agape love is the supreme concept of love because it is grounded and it has its foundation in the very person of God. 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love, or agape, is from God. Agape love is a supernatural love that comes from God. And verse 8 says, God is love. And you know, agape love is the highest form of love because it is not based on feelings. It's not based on emotions. It's not based upon status or looks or an individual's worthiness. Agape love is sacrificial love that seeks the well-being and highest good of an individual. 
And you know, it's important to understand that everything that God does flows from this agape love. And this morning, if you're taking notes, I just have two gospel truths that I want to look at about the, the love of God that are found in our passage this morning. And the first one is this. God's love is an active and sacrificial love. God's love is an active and sacrificial love. In verse 9, it says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And to be the propitiation or the appeasement or the atonement for our sin. God's love is an active and sacrificial love. And we know that it's active because He sent His Son to us. It is a put down your remote control, get up off the couch and go out and love kind of love. It's a deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus kind of love. And this kind of love is active and it's actively seeking the well-being of others. And this is important to understand because the love of God is not just words, but it's also expressed through action or through deeds. And, you know, Jesus, he did not just yell down from heaven. I love you. Come up and see me sometime. As a matter of fact, Jesus knew that we could not come up to him, so he had to actively get up and come down into our world. He lived among us. He sweat among us. He became one among us. He celebrated among us. He cried among us, and then he died for us. That is the sacrificial part of his love. And he actively sacrificed his life for us, ultimately on a cross. And so the first thing I want us to see about the love of God is that it is an active and sacrificial love. Secondly, God's love is an enemy embracing love. This is one of the most astounding parts of God's love. Verse 10 says this, in this is love. John's saying, hey, if you want to see God's love, here it is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That is ridiculous. What I just read is so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, I'm gonna read it again. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That, that is ridiculous. Do you realize what I just read? It's saying that the unlovely did not love the lovely, the impure did not love the pure. The guilty did not love the guiltless. But it's, it's, the, it's the other way around. The lovely loved the unlovely. The pure loved the impure. And the guiltless loved the guilty. Something's wrong with that. That is upside down. That is not human love. God loved the unlovable. God loved the ungrateful. God loved his enemies. And you know, this is the highest form of love. When you can truly, truly love your enemies and when you can truly seek their well-being, what's best for them. Not vengeance, not destruction, not evil, but what is best for that person. And this is the heart of God. This is the heart of God towards those who hate Him. 
His desire is that all would turn to him, turn away from sin and come and receive his love so that they won't be destroyed. And you know, Romans 5 verses 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Listen, we need to let that sink into our heads. God did not come down and die for the righteous. He died for the ungodly. Verse 7 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And I love verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love or His own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we were good, but while we were still rebellious sinners, Christ died for us. And you know, humanly speaking, we typically won't die for someone unless we believe they are worthy. You know, a parent, a mom, she'll die for her children. A husband who loves his wife and his family, he'll die for them. A soldier will die for his country. Why? Because they believe that the one that they are dying for is worthy to live. But that's not God's love. That's not how God loved us. He died for those who are worthy to die. He died for sinners. And so he didn't die for us because we were worthy, because we were righteous. But he died for us because he has a love that is so holy, that is so unlike our human love. And A.W. Tozer writes, It's a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he has allowed his heart to be emotionally identified with men. Self-sufficient as he is. In other words, God, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. Self-sufficient as he is. He wants our love. That is crazy. He wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. Free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. You know, God's love is an active and sacrificial love, and it is an enemy-embracing love. And as wonderful and glorious as his love is, there are many who reject it, who will not receive it. You know, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. And yet there are many who would say, really? God is love? Then why? I've got two questions that are, or objections that are, that are often raised when someone says that God is a loving God. And I wanted to just go over them real briefly. Number one, the question that is asked is this. If God is love, why does he send people to hell? And there is a Christian apologist whose name is Frank Turek, and he had someone tell him one time that his grandmother had survived the Holocaust and that she had lived a life of, of great suffering, but she was a good person. And he said, you know, my grandmother openly rejected Jesus. She never received him. She never believed in him. And he said, is my grandmother in hell because she didn't receive Jesus? And Frank Turek answered her like this. He said, if she rejected Jesus before she died, then God is too loving to force her to go to heaven. I want you to think about that. 
What is heaven? What is the real heaven that is described in the Word of God? Not what we've created in our mind. Because there are those who reject God, who think that heaven is a place of joy and life and hope, and you're with your loved ones, not realizing that God is the one and the only one that can give us those things. They want heaven, but they don't want God to be there when they get there. And in reality, if you want to know what heaven is, heaven or the kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus rules. It's wherever Jesus has conquered. He is going to be a king that rules over those he has conquered. But you know what? The interesting thing about Jesus is this. When he conquers and brings people into his kingdom, he doesn't conquer with fear. He doesn't conquer with wrath. He doesn't force his love upon anyone. You know how he conquers? He conquers through love, through agape love. And it is God, it is Jesus who makes heaven, heaven. And so if you don't accept, receive, or love God or Jesus in this life, you're not going to want to be in heaven because that's where Jesus is ruling and he's reigning. And the love of God is never forced upon anybody. Because if you force love upon someone, if you force them to love you, that is not true love. That is not the love of God. C.S. Lewis says it this way, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And so we need to understand that God's love does not flow from a cruel heart. He does not want to torture His creation. Scripture teaches us actually that He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked and that He desires that all would turn from sin and come to Him in repentance. His disposition towards us is a disposition of patience, of kindness, of long-suffering. The Scripture says that He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. And the question I have for us is this, why does, he, why does He show kindness to those who hate Him? Well, Romans 2 says the reason that He shows kindness, the reason that He shows loving kindness to people is that He wants to win them, not with anger and wrath, but with His kindness and with His love. And you know, if someone refuses to accept the love of God, he is not going to force his love upon them. Secondly, a question of opposition to God's love is this. If God is love, why does he allow evil and suffering? And this is a question that many of us ask. Why does God allow evil and suffering? And there was a panel discussion that was held between two men. One was a pastor. His name is Tim Keller. And another is, is an American historian whose name is David Eisenbach. He professes to be a atheist. And in this talk, Eisenbach says to Tim Keller, you know, there were six million Jews during the Holocaust who were exterminated. And a total of about 80 million lives were lost during that time. If there is a God, if there is a God of love, why did he not go down and intervene? Why didn't he stop the Holocaust? 
You know, that's, that's a, a great question. And I love what Tim Keller said. He was very transparent and open. He said, you know what? I don't know. As a matter of fact, I don't know why God allows much of the evil and the suffering in the world. But then he said something that I thought was really profound. He said this, but it can't be because God is indifferent and that he doesn't care. We know this because if he didn't care, Jesus wouldn't have come down to get involved. That's the gospel. God proved that he loves us. Well, Eisenbach heard that response and he pressed in a little bit further. He said, okay, but I still can't see a good reason why God would not just come down and stop the Holocaust. And Tim Keller said, you know, just because you can't see a good reason, does that mean that one cannot exist? And he goes on to give this example. He said, you know, if you see a pup tent, a tent, and I say, are there any St. Bernards in that tent? Now, a St. Bernard is a huge dog. You can't miss it. If I ask you, is there a St. Bernard in there, and you look in the tent, and there is not a St. Bernard, then you can safely say that there are no St. Bernards within the tent. But then he goes on to say, but what if I asked you if there are any no seams in that tent? Now, a no seam is a little tiny gnat-like creature that is so small that it can crawl through a mosquito net and still bite you. And Tim Keller said, if you look into a pup tent and I ask you, do you see any no seams?" and you say no, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no seams in there because you can't see them. And just because we can't see something, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And just because we can't see or think of a good reason why God would allow evil and suffering, that doesn't mean that a good reason doesn't exist. And I have to be honest with you, I also struggle with this question. There's times I ask that question, why does God allow evil and suffering? For example, you know that couple that would make a great father and mother and God doesn't allow them to have children. Or there's that single person that would make a wonderful spouse and God has not allowed them to get married. Or a child, an innocent child that experiences cancer or who, or who has been abused by someone for years and years. Or even this pandemic that we are currently in, that we're currently working through. There are so many people that have been hurt physically and economically because of this. The question is why? Why has God allowed this? And why hasn't God stepped in to stop it? Well, you know, I think that this is a question that even Jesus' disciples wrestled with. When Jesus told them that he was going to go to the cross, what do, what do they tell him? They say, no, that doesn't make sense. The Messiah that we are, are looking for is going to stay and overthrow Rome. But you know, when Jesus was arrested, when he was uh, bound and he went to trial, when he was beaten and he, when he was spit upon and he, when he was stripped and finally nailed to a tree and died, the disciples couldn't think of a good reason that God, that a loving God, God the Father would take his son, his only son, whom he was well pleased with and would sacrifice his son. That did not make sense to the disciples. And you know why? It's because they had a false idea of who the Messiah was to be. They had created a Messiah in their minds. 
And in doing so, they became blind and they missed the love of God that was being displayed right in front of them, right before their very eyes as the innocent one was being punished for the guilty ones. And that is the love of God, the Son of God dying for not only his friends, but dying for his enemies. And you know, it's true that God is patient. He's kind and he's merciful. He's not mean-spirited. But it's also important to understand something about agape love. And I wouldn't be loving if I didn't tell you about it. And that is that God's love deals with sin. And he loved us so much that he sent his son to confront us in our sin, to call us to come out of our sin. And you know, this is the part of God's love that is often not received as love. And yet in love, Jesus came to us and he said this, number one, you are not fit. You are not in a place to come before God in your sin. And number two, because of your sin, you should be punished. And number three, you need a savior and you can't save yourself. But God's love didn't stop there. No, instead he said, you know what? I will be your savior because I am perfect. I have never sinned and I will be punished in your place. I will be punished because of your sin. And number three, because of my punishment for your sin, if you will turn from your sin and come to me and believe what I did for you, you can be made righteous. You can be made perfect, sinless, pure, and made right so that you can come into the presence of God and become a child of God. And this morning, my question would be this. Have you accepted what Christ has done for you? If not, I would encourage you to not put that off. Come to God through Jesus Christ. And you know, just as a reminder, we are in a season of life, a time in life, where there are going to be a lot of opportunities for us to display the love of God, both within our church body and in our community. But if we're gonna be empowered to do this, we ourselves as a church, as individuals and as a church body, we have to continue to abide in the love of God. We need to be reminded of the love of God. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us by sending his son to be punished for our sins and dying for our sins on the cross. And beloved, and reach life church, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And my prayer is that the Lord would grant us to be freshly amazed, freshly affected and transformed by this living love, by the living love of God that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will this week, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.